Human resources, employee relations, the legal department are aligned against you. Your employer has trained for this day, the day you've become an expendable number at work. There are robust laws that may protect you, but unlike the company, you've not been drilled on how to wield them. You're playing catch-up. There are pitfalls to avoid and countermeasures to deploy that may save your job or put you in the best position to negotiate a favorable settlement. Minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. The Walking Papers podcast offers the first foray into learning how to turn the tables when you've been targeted at work. Knowledge is power. Let's get started. I'm Robert Ingalls, and I am back today with attorney Josh Van Campen to discuss severance packages. Welcome, Josh. Hi, how's it going? I am lovely. Thank you. So, Josh, what is a severance package? So, um, it's kind of a, a dark term, isn't it? Severance. <laughs> well, it means you've been severed from your job, but um, severance packages aren't all bad if they're good packages, but generally severance packages include uh, monetary payments, usually some period of weeks or months of pay, and then also a continuation of uh, health, medical, dental, the sort of fringe benefits that you would uh, normally um, receive if you were still employed. And then severance packages come with a huge string attached, which is uh, your waiver of your legal claims and receipt for that that money, and then these severance packages are drafted by evil and you know uh, management side employment attorneys who have slanted them so heavily toward their employer's interest. They can be pretty distasteful documents, uh, pride swallowing documents sometimes. And so we're going to uh, in this podcast be talking about things that we want to negotiate out of severance agreements, things we want to negotiate into severance agreements, and then obviously the. The elephant in the room is to talk about increasing uh, severance offers and, and, and how to go about enhancing your severance package. Now, are there any particular laws that govern severance packages? Yes. There, there's a law called ERISA, and, and only masochistic attorneys uh, want to specialize in ERISA because it's very obscure and has a lot of obscure kind of tax implications attached to it. But most publicly traded companies and or sophisticated privately held companies often have what are called severance plans. And as employees, you're actually entitled to request a copy of your summary plan description or SPD for short. And so this will uh, this document will define what the standard severance package is. And oftentimes there are different gradations of, of severance pay depending on what category you fall in within. A summary plan description. So, for example, C-suite executives, you know, corporate officers, often have their own severance plan. That uh, those are kind of the richer, uh, richest severance plans that you're going to see. Um, and then different gradations of professional employees may have a different formula that you know they're paid under. And then finally, uh, there are ERISA plans, oftentimes for hourly employees. And so, uh, just listeners need to understand that these are the standard plans and you actually are entitled to receive whatever the standard package is if you fall within whatever whatever criteria is set forth in the summary plan description. So now if they come to me with this standard package, is there any wiggle room there? Like is that kind of the end of it or is there a negotiation room? So um, don't buy it when your employer says, oh, we can't possibly deviate from our summary plan description 
And I'm telling you that, you know, employers do that all the time. And the reason why they do that is because the value of the waiver and release that the employer is requiring, remember the string attached that we, we talked about earlier, you know, depending on what your legal claims are, it may be worth more to that employer to get you to sign that waiver and release than if you were just kind of a run-of-the-mill person who was displaced without any legal claims. Sure. Now, if this is a smaller company, well, does that how does that process differ? So most smaller companies don't have formal severance plans, and so they, they would take more of an ad hoc approach. And in a way, sometimes that's helpful because it, it actually gets out from under this argument where they're saying, well, we can't deviate from our past practice because there isn't any governing document. And the other thing is these small businesses – even though there's no, you know, there's no past precedent they need to follow under the plan, they still can't discriminate against you. So let's say that the white executives who were displaced from a small business always got six month severance packages, but then an African American executive gets displaced, then they offer them three months. Um, even though there's no severance plan per se under the ERISA statute, like we talked about that small or medium-sized business still can't discriminate against somebody because of their race or their sex or their religion or that sort of thing in, uh, in the amount that they pay in severance. Gotcha. Now let's talk timeframes to sign severance agreements. Why do some severance plans allow for, say, 21 days to consider, and then others may have shorter timeframes? So um, I know everybody is always wondering, like, what, where does this 21-day period come from? It comes from a, a statute called the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act. And I'm a little offended by this statute because it assumes that people over 40 need more time. <laughs> Got to really think about that. Yeah, they really need to think about it, you know, because they're infirm. <laughs> and so the, the law requires that if you're over 40, that you be given 21 days, calendar days, to consider a severance offer. Now, that uh, 21 days can actually expand to 45 days if you are, you've been displaced as part of a group layoff, you know, in which case you get a full uh, 45 calendar days. And then the, uh, the other requirement that's nice from the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act is if, it's, if you're displaced as a group layoff, you're entitled to know the ages and number of people in your job classifications so that you can compare who is retained and who was displaced. So that's a really nice feature. And then finally, that statute also allows you to revoke. So let's say you signed within your 21 days, you realized you were foolish for doing so, you can actually revoke if you uh, provide a written notification that you want to revoke within uh, five business days of, uh, of your signing. Now what happens if the employer doesn't give you the required time? So you get to keep your money uh, the money that they paid you, and you can still sue them for age discrimination. It sounds like the win-win. It's it's a win-win. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, in a way, you kind of feel a little bad. You're like, well, geez, you know, I did accept the severance. I signed a piece of paper I, that I wouldn't sue, but on a technicality, that waiver it, as to the age discrimination wasn't enforceable. You can then sue. Now, the employer, if you win in trial, the employer is going to take as a credit. The severance that was paid you to in the first place, but you can still bring suit. The bad news is the waiver that you signed as to other kinds of discrimination, like race discrimination or sex discrimination, that waiver that you signed is still effective for those other claims, but your age discrimination claim survives. Gotcha. 
Now, I know that frequently severance agreements tend to be uniform, but do you ever come across provisions in any of the severance agreements you've seen that give you pause or would make you say, no, we're definitely not signing this? Yeah, there we, we encounter a lot of these provisions in almost every severance agreement. And really, can you blame the employer? They're like thinking, well, you know, if we can get away with these draconian or measures or what would normally be poison pills and agreements, uh, let's, let's, let's get them. And they try. So a couple that we want to be really weary of, uh, the first of, uh, first of which is a cutoff for severance. So in a normal severance agreement, you get your severance regardless of whether you get a new job within the six month period they were paying you, for example. But increasingly I'm seeing employers insert provisions that if you get a job in the shorter increment of time, say three months within that six month period, that it cut off, cuts off your severance. That's not fair. Because, you know, you obviously would have worked for that company for a long time to have earned that severance. And you shouldn't be penalized by receiving less severance because you did a good job and got a, you know, got a a new job sooner. So we routinely uh, will go to Matt, go to the Matt on a a, a provision like that and, you know, have our clients uh, refuse to sign it. And that one is not standard. And so the overwhelming majority of time, the uh, employer will back off of that sort mm-hmm. of provision. Gotcha. Uh, another one that uh, rubs me the wrong way, what I call draconian enforcement provision. So you're likely to have a non-disparagement provision in your severance agreement. You can't say anything bad about the company. And let's say you had a few too many drinks one night at the uh, Wooden Robot Brewery, my favorite brewery in Charlotte. And uh, you ran your mouth and you said something bad about your boss or the company to your buddy and it was overheard by a legal you know a secretary from the company the way the provisions are often written in these severance agreements they could say that you breached your non-disparagement provision and the contract may allow them to cut off your severance benefits if you disparage the company or to sue you to recover all the money that they paid you because you breached the non-disparagement provision. Now, at that point, you know, that's kind of the employer playing judge and jury. Do you have, like, let's say this happens, that situation occurs and they cut off your severance at that point. Do you have the ability to file suit over this? Well, that's, that's what, that's what I get so bothered about this. It's like the, the employer should not be able to determine whether or not you breached and then turn off the spigot. The employer should have to go be have to go to, go down to the courthouse and convince a judge that you breached to turn off the spigot because obviously the employer has a financial incentive to turn it off. Sure. So we'll routinely uh, push back on such a provision and say, well, employer, sure, you can turn off the spigot, but you got to prove there was a breach, and you got to go down to the courthouse uh, courthouse to do it. Right. Are there any other provisions you see that are you know kind of heavily one sided in favor of the employer? Well, I call it uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul. So let's say that uh, during uh, the employee's employment, they never signed a non-compete agreement. All of a sudden, you're laid off. They're going to pay you six months paying severance, but they want you to sign a one-year non-compete. First of all, they're not paying you a year severance. So why why would you agree to a year non-compete when they're only paying you for six months? Furthermore, why would you want to onboard that kind of restriction or obligation when you didn't have it while you were a worker uh, for the company. So, you know, we routinely just mark out any sort of new non-compete obligation. Unless the company wants to pay your severance, then we say, you got a deal. <laughs> right. You know, it's usually a pretty good bargain for a client at that point. 
All right, so we covered provisions that the employer may try to add in there. Are there provisions that you like adding to these agreements for your clients? Yeah, I mean, one thing that makes me nervous for folks is when, let's say, you were lucky enough to have a six-month or eight-month severance package, and it's paid out over eight months. That is exposure that you have that the company could be sold, could go out of business, could manufacture some BS argument that you breached your obligations and turn off the spigot, and then now you're having to go to court to try to turn the spigot back on. So um, the safest way to handle that is to to get a lump sum payment up front. Now, sure, you might be paying more taxes because it's you know it's a bigger paycheck up front, but come tax time, so you get a refund because you overpaid. But most importantly, you don't have the risk that those payments could stop. So that's one example. The other thing that's ridiculous too is like. So they want to muzzle you. The employer wants to muzzle you and say, you can't disparage and say anything negative about your managers or the company, but they can say whatever the heck they want to about you. And so we're always saying, look, we can live with a non-disparagement provision, but it's got to be mutual. Now, most companies are not going to agree to bind a corporation because they can't police every single person. But it is reasonable for the listener to go to you know the human resources department and say, well, at least let me identify three or four people because you can certainly control what three or four people are going to say during their employment. And so oftentimes, if you limit it to a finite number of folks, then the employer will agree to it or their fallback. Most employers try to get it away with saying, well, we'll agree to instruct you know these individuals not to disparage you. But guess what? That instruction is meaningless. You can't sue them, you know, because they disparaged you if the employer's only obligation was an instruction. So you want to go to the mat and have a, you know, an actual agreement not to disparage, not an instruction. So do you put anything in there about references? Because I know that's one that comes up a lot. People are worried that when they leave this job, the next thing they're doing is job hunting. And they're concerned about what that reference is going to look like. Does that get included in any of the agreements? You know, 99% of employers anymore have a neutral employment reference policy. But guess what? You can't sue them for breaching a policy after you've been fired. It's not enforceable. So you want to have the neutral employment reference provision in the contract because then you can sue for a breach of contract. You can't sue for a breach of a policy. So uh, you you definitely want to fight to have a neutral employment reference provision in in the agreement. Also, though... You want to make sure, let's say you did hire an attorney and the attorney asserted potential legal claims against the employer. Uh, You don't want the employer to be able to run their mouth about you having hired a lawyer or threatened legal claims. So in that instance, we're going to want to insert language that says that if they are contacted for a reference by a prospective employer, that we're not, uh, they're not allowed to reference that you hired an attorney or threatened legal claims. Sure. And do you address unemployment in any of these severance agreements? Like if an employee decides they want to apply for unemployment, does this come up? So um, you definitely want an agreement uh, not to contest your unemployment application in the, in the provision. And normally employers are going to agree to that. If you don't have that in there then, and they want to be you know, uh, jackasses, they could then contest your unemployment and possibly negate your unemployment benefits you want to make sure that you're on the same page with your employer, that they're not going to not going to do that. Sure. And how does severance come into play with unemployment? Does that affect your potential unemployment? 
Yeah, so you, you got to be careful because, you, you know, at least in North Carolina and probably in most states, you're not allowed to collect unemployment while you're also receiving severance because you're not, you don't have a loss. Right, kind of double dipping. It's double dipping, right. So uh, the safest thing to do is if you're receiving severance, not to apply for unemployment until your severance has been paid because you're, you're absolutely not qualified to receive unemployment while you're also receiving a severance. Sure. Now, is there any other provisions? Yeah, I mean, another another thing that folks are sometimes concerned with is how is the how is the separation classified internally? So, you know, most folks don't want to have to describe or explain a termination to uh, in a job interview. So, um, you know, you can use the opportunity in a severance agreement to classify a separation as being voluntary or as being mutual or as being a job, elimin- job elimination or Another option is to say a non-performance-based termination. Uh, that way, uh, you know, you can avoid those uncomfortable conversations in a job interview. And is there any discussion ever about, you know, giving a positive reference? I don't know why they never agree to that. I mean, it seems to me, <laughs> and I'm, you know, or I'm in a mediation or whatever. I'm like, come on, just, you know, write my client a letter. It costs you nothing. Right. But I'd say what 85% of the time they just draw a line in the sand and say no. So for listeners, the best way to get around that is to not ask for that officially in the severance negotiations. So if you've got a good relationship with your boss under the radar, your boss may give you a positive reference letter. But if you push for it in the formal negotiations on severance, you're going to get the no. I'm telling you, you're going to get the no. And now you're your boss who might've given you an under the table positive reference uh, might be scared off from doing so. Gotcha. So earlier we talked about negotiating severance is what are the pros and cons of negotiating for a higher number? Well, the, the con is at least in North Carolina. So when you make a a counter offer to a severance offer, it operates as a rejection of the offer. So they're not required to put that original offer on the table when you make a counter offer. Now, in my negotiations, especially because of this, you know, the style that I have, which is which is diplomatic and you know, approaching this as a problem to solve, you know, not banging on tables. Um, I always tell my clients that I have little to no concern that an offer is going to be pulled uh, because we made a counter offer just because of how we do it. But in theory, when you make a counteroffer, it can be rejected. The other thing that can be a little nerve-wracking for clients is that it's very unlikely that we're going to get your severance agreement enhanced within 21 days. So you got this, you know, this blinking light at, you know, 21 days, you have to sign this or they're not going to have it on the table. Well, I can tell you that 95% of the time, employers are still willing to pay you that original package regardless of whether 21 days went by because they're not offering it to you out of the goodness of their heart. It's a business decision. They want you to sign that waiver and release. So we just blow right by that 21 days. And I, and I just tell my, I don't, I don't ask for an extension. Don't ask for an extension because <laughs> then they're going to know that you're worried about it being pulled. So you just gotta, you just gotta be a cool cucumber Act like you don't care and trust your lawyer when he says, don't worry with the approach that we have in our history. Just let me go by those 21 days. You're going to be all right. Um, and I, I've only had one matter in 20 some years of doing this where 
and I had uh, an offer pulled, and that was just because the other lawyer was like batshit crazy. These things happen. Yeah. That kind of it sounds like it kind of lets the other lawyer or the company know that you know the ball's in your court. Correct, and and also for them to they they need to know my client's not signing that. Yeah. So. All right. So how do I know what the value of my claim is? I know every case is going to be different, but in general. Okay. Well, it goes back to that string that was attached. So what legal claims do you have that you're waiving in exchange for the severance offer? And on that one, you know, sorry to say to our listeners is, you know, you're just not qualified to be able to assess what your legal claims are worth. So you should consult with an employment attorney. I mean, you should talk to an employment attorney anyway, even if you don't think you have a claim, because there are these, remember these provisions that I said, or should be poison pills that you're going to want to change you should have a lawyer to go over your severance contract to begin with. But while you're at it, then you want the lawyer to tell you, what are my legal claims? What are they worth? And so that is measured on, on two axes. You know, one is, you know, what is your likelihood of prevailing in the case? What is your likelihood that you're going to win? And then secondly, if you win your lawsuit, what are you likely to recover? So, and actually I think, the next podcast, we're going we're gonna to address the different kind of damages that you can recover in a lawsuit. But your lawyer is going to tell you on the axes, you know, what you're looking at. But a lot, for me, a lot of it is gut feel. So I'll, I'll go into the negotiations with the company with an idea of what I think our client should offer. But I never make an offer on my client's behalf until I've had an initial phone call or even two phone calls with the company lawyer. Because... I am dipping my toe in that water. I'm paying attention to his tone, everything he says, because what I want to do for my client is we want to ask for as much money as we can possibly ask for it, but without being detrimental and shooting ourselves in the foot. So that's why we never make an offer right out of the gates, because I want to have every single data point I can possibly think of. Now, the wild card and severance negotiations as well is, regardless of what you can recover in court, what leverage do you have? So a lot of times our, our clients may know where the proverbial you know skeleton is hidden in the closet. And even though they're legal claims, let's just say they're B legal claims, they may have A plus leverage. And so we would be you know foolish not to factor in all the leverage points, legal and non-legal, in trying to get our clients the best deal we can. Sure. So tell me about the approach that Van Camp and Law takes to severance negotiations. When I walk in the door, I sit down and we start working together. What can I expect? Well, believe it or not, in an hour, you know, we we were able to complete a severance review. We've just done so many of them over the years and have a pretty good uh, gut feel of, of whether or not, you know, we think that there's a good opportunity to enhance a severance package. And, and, and you're not, and you have to remember that we're trying to get a company to voluntarily sign a check. So if you hire a lawyer who's nothing but fire and brimstone, that's that's not the lawyer you want in a severance negotiation setting because he's he's going to probably do more harm than good and put put him in the in the corner of the room when you're trying to get him to to meet you at a table. So approach is is really key, but you you still need to be on the one hand you're extending an olive branch, but on the other hand you have to have a a fist cocked because they're not going to give you a good deal because your lawyer was a nice guy. Uh, they also have to understand that, you know, you hired a trial attorney, an attorney who files a lot of lawsuits that, you know, uh, isn't bluffing. And so that's why it's really important to make sure that you hire 
uh, litigator if you're trying to enhance uh, your severance package and not just, you know, a run-of-the-mill kind of civil attorney. Gotcha. Was there any last words on this subject you want to talk about? Just final thoughts in terms of pitfalls to avoid. Understand that your severance offer is highly confidential. And, you know, there was actually an instance where there were negotiations around a severance uh, or a settlement. And we may have talked about it before in a previous podcast where uh, the daughter of the executive got on social media and bragged about (laughs) how the family was now going to go on a trip to, I don't know, some extravagant place. And then, you know, made some sort of like flippant remark about the employer. (laughs) In that instance, you know, the severance was lost. So right off the bat, you know, if you're in severance negotiations and offers are going back and forth, if you're represented by counsel or not, each one of those offers you have to treat like a family secret. Don't leave your severance agreement sitting on the kitchen table. Certainly don't bring it to the coffee shop because you're going to end up, you know, throwing away what could be a really, a really good deal for yourself and your family. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks, Josh. You're welcome. Thanks, everybody. Congratulations for taking an important initial step in turning the tables at work. But this podcast is just an educational resource. It does not constitute legal advice and is no substitute for consulting an employment attorney about your unique situation before making legal decisions. Visit our website for more online resources and videos at ncemploymentattorneys.com. Or better yet, call 704-247-3245 for a free initial intake interview so Van Campen Law can evaluate your case. Until next time, keep your head up and your wits about you. 